morning is from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. I don't know the page number in the Pew Bible, but it's near the start. First book, first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Then we move down to verse 24. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Amen. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself, says A.W. Tozer in his wee book, Knowledge of the Holy. John Calvin said, it is impossible for us to truly know ourselves until we come to our true knowledge 
of the God who created us. It's only when we have seen him as he is that we then see ourselves as we are. So we're going to take a few weeks together to look at who God is, to take some of the names of God from Scripture and to ask ourselves what these names in their context have to tell us, have to teach us about the nature of God, about who God is. We have to be selective. We're only going to take a few names, a few titles, and there are many names, many titles that God takes to himself in Scripture. So we have to be selective, but still, I think this will be fruitful and helpful for all of us. So, it seems to me that the most sensible place to start is in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the first person that we meet in Scripture is God Himself. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word for God there is Elohim, which is surprising because the end of that word, Elohim, the end of that word tells you that it's plural, not singular, uh, like cherubim, seraphim, plural. And, and so we're, we're faced with a question already so early in Scripture. So if we turn to Deuteronomy, you don't need to turn there, you can if you want, but Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other Elohim before me. So why is it in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Elohim is translated gods, and in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and the verses that follow thereafter, Elohim is translated God singular. Is this just the bias, the theological bias of those who translated the Bible? They're trying to pull the wool over our eyes. Or is there a real reason why they would take this decision? Well, there's something funny going on in Genesis chapter 1. I say that with, with due reverence. Uh, because the verb is, is singular. The noun is plural, but the verb that relates to that noun is singular. You wouldn't expect that normally. In the beginning, Elohim, plural, created, singular. That's not the natural way for Hebrew grammar to work. So you look at Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 26, and we see it more clearly in English here. Then God... Elohim, plural, said, singular, let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God, Elohim, plural, created man in his singular, own image. In the image of God, 
Elohim, he, singular, created him. Male and female, he, singular, created them. What do you do with that? So, obviously, um, theologians and scholars, as they tend to do, this is um, what theologians and scholars do, they come up with loads of theories. So, some scholars have said that actually Genesis is a very primitive book, and all the way back then, thousands of years ago, the people of God were quite open to polytheism, the fact that there were many gods, a collection of gods who created the world. Well, that is clearly wrong. The theology is wrong and the grammar is wrong. It it creates more problems than it solves. Why did the gods create man in his image? It doesn't solve the problem at all. Some have said that it's God addressing the heavenly host. So there he is with the angels, with the cherubim, seraphim. The heavenly hosts... And that's why he speaks in the plural, let us, let us create man in our image. But the heavenly hosts are not involved in creating the world. It's God and God alone who creates the world. God is the only creator, and we are made in God's image and likeness, not the image and likeness of the heavenly host. Others have suggested that it's some kind of honorific way of speaking of God, so it It's a way of of lifting up God to speak of Him in the plural. But that seems very much like clutching at straws to me and to the vast majority of other people. The vast majority of Christians through the ages have seen this as a pointer in the direction of the Trinity. This mixing of the singular and the plural seems to point to the fact that there is one God and within that Godhead, three persons. It makes perfect sense, actually. For us, as Christians, as those who believe in the triune God, as we read these verses in the first chapter of Genesis, it makes perfect sense to those who believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, It makes perfect sense when we come to verse 2 of Genesis and we see the Spirit of God hovering over the water. We may be tempted to say, well, we see God. We assume that to be God the Father. We see the Spirit of God. Where is Jesus? Maybe that's what John thought as he prepared to sit down and write his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He goes on to speak of all things being made through him, Without him, nothing was made that has been made. It makes perfect sense to us. Even as we read through the Old Testament, we do meet a man, don't we? We meet a man who is higher than the angels, and yet in some way distinct from God on many occasions. And Christians have always taken that person to be the pre-incarnate Christ. So these verses that may be problem verses for some people don't really pose any problems for us, for those of us who believe in the triune God. So, who is this God? Who is the Elohim of the first verse of the Bible? He is the God who was there in the beginning, before creation, 
before any other stuff, there is God. There He is. Elohim. He doesn't owe His existence to another. He is the uncreated one. Everything and everyone else owes its or his or her existence to something else or to someone else. We owe our birth to our parents, don't we? We owe our lives to the food that we eat, to the shelter of our homes, to the warmth of our clothes, some of us to the pills that we take every day, medicine. We are dependent, utterly dependent, on this created world. We didn't earn our existence before we were born. We just arrived thanks to other people. But not so for God. While we are dependent on other created things to exist and to live before there were any other created things, any created things, I should say, there was God, the uncreated one, the unmoved mover in Aristotle, not dependent upon his creation. He is the only one who is truly self-sufficient. And yet he creates and sustains and relates to that which he has made. He loves. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? So what should our response to this God be? Well, firstly, worship. Worship. Without Him there is nothing, nothing but Him. And we look at the beauty of the world that God has made, the greatness of the, the universe as far as we can see it. It's, it's, it's beyond our ability to, to comprehend so great, so glorious, so enormous. Get Bob to tell you some of these facts. I, I get privy to some of these facts as I've been ferried from place to place. These facts which, which you just can't begin to comprehend. You can't get them in your head because they're too big. The size and the scale of the universe. And then think about the God big enough to make it all and worship. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. The world all around us, the universe, is preaching to us. It's proclaiming the greatness of the God who made it. The only question is, do we have ears to hear the sermon? Are we listening? Are we looking? Praise the Lord, says David. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights above. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, 
all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded, and they were created. Think about how you, you are a created being. As I said a moment ago, you didn't earn your existence. I didn't earn my existence before I was born. I just arrived, thanks to those who had gone before me. And since then, every single breath in my lungs, every single beat of my heart has been a gift from God. Worship Him. That's why we're here. Not just here, but here. To worship Him. To give to Him. And that is why we're here. doesn't matter whether we're through there or in here. We gather together on the Lord's Day primarily to worship Him, to give to Him our worship and our praise. We come to receive from Him too. That's true and important. He is the God who is pleased to meet with His people, to speak to His people, to minister to His people. We come to receive, to hear, to get from God. But first and foremost, we come to give to God our worship and our praise for who He is and for who He is to us in Christ. We don't come to assess the performance from the front with the wee paddles in our heads, you know, like Darcy Bustle or Craig Revel Horwood. Is that right? We don't come to say, oh, it was a seven. Oh, I saw a few wee stumbles in there. Didn't get much from that today. It's a five. That's not what we come to do. We come above everything else to give our worship to God because we know that He is worthy. So we are here to worship God, the maker of heaven and earth. Number one, worship God. Number two, love God. Which is related to worship God, isn't it? Love God in the knowledge that He has loved us, that He does love us. So there is God in a high and holy place, the creator and sustainer of the universe. And you say with the psalmist, what is man that you are mindful of him? Even looking at the things that God has made makes you feel small. I remember lying in a beach, on a beach in the middle of nowhere in Greece, all by myself, late at night, looking up at the sky and seeing more stars than I had ever seen in my entire life. And looking at these stars, I thought to myself, I am tiny, tiny, given the size and the scale of the universe. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is Ross? that you are mindful of me. How much more tiny should I have felt thinking about the God who made the stars and put them in their proper places? Yet He is mindful of us. He does love us. He did make us. 
He sustains us. He didn't have to make us. He wasn't lonely. From all eternity, God had existed in three persons in perfect fellowship. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit in perfect love. He wasn't lonely. He didn't have to make us. And yet he did. He made us in his image to think and to reason and to create and to order and to rule and to speak and to relate. He made us to know him. And we sinned against him. We threw it all back in his face and still he loved us. We turned away from him and he reached out to rescue us from the mess of our own making. He is not just glorious, He is gracious. His love endures forever. And we see that love perfectly as we look to the triune God. God the Father in love sends His only Son into the world on a rescue mission. God the Son is born into our fallen world. He lives the perfect life that we have failed to live even in the face of such testing and such injustice. He dies the death that we deserved to die on the cross for our sin. Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. And he rises. That's not where the story ends. He doesn't end with the death of Jesus because he rises to life. He rises victorious over the grave, over sin, over Satan, over the curse. And he shares that victory that he has earned with all who will simply come to him with empty hands, with nothing to offer, and call on his name. He shares this victory, this triumph of grace with all who simply trust him and follow him. So the love of the Father in sending the Son, the love of the Son in fulfilling His mission for us, and the love of the Spirit. The Spirit leads us to Christ, reveals to us the truth of Jesus, seals our salvation, and empowers the life that we live as we follow Jesus all the way home. We sinned but God loved. Elohim, the Creator God, is the God who is mighty to save. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together in perfect unity, perfect harmony for us, that we might come to know Him again, to love Him again, to be brought into right relationship with Him again. There is love. And there is reason to love him. But not just him. Our last point, love others. Worship God, love God, love others. Love others within the church because a loving church will present to the world a picture of God. A loving church will present to the world a picture of a community 
you know, diversity in unity. And that's the very nature of God, isn't it? The one God in three persons. There is diversity and yet perfect unity. And so here we are, all different ages. We ought to long to have a church that has all the different ages, all the the different uh, types of people, different uh, races, different personalities, different politics, you know, as diverse as possible, and yet one in Christ. Because that presents to the world a picture of the nature of the true and living God. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If we don't love each other as He has loved us in Christ, we won't fulfill our calling to be a beacon that points the way to God. But not just each other. Love those outside the church too, because God has created them. Every single person is infused with this divine dignity because they have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, we read Genesis chapter 1 knowing that we're going to come to Genesis chapter 3 very soon. So, we read the creation account knowing that the fall is just around the corner. So, the image of God has been twisted and tainted to some degree in all of us. But it's not been obliterated. It's still there. You can still see it if you have the eyes to see it. And every single person is made in the image and likeness of God. And therefore, every single person has intrinsic worth and value and significance. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. We are still fearfully and wonderfully made. And we ought to see that not only in ourselves, but in each other. Different genders, races, personalities, politics, but in all of us, something of the image of the God who made us. There are more things that we could say as we consider God's nature as the triune a source and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. We could talk about respecting God's created honor, uh, order, rather. That's a very hot topic in the society in which we live when it comes to, to sexuality, respecting the way that God has created the world to be. We could talk about that. We could talk about being good stewards of the created world. Again, that's a very hot and live topic in the world in which we live how we care for the planet that God has given us to rule over. We could talk about that. We could talk about uh, the need for humility because we recognize that actually we are people who are thoroughly dependent on others, on the, the, the people around us, on the created world. We recognize that we are dependent on God, ultimately, that we are not the master of our fate and the captain of our soul, as people like to think. We could talk about all or any of these things. 
But the three points that we have reflected on, I think, are top priority. Worship Him. He is the triune creator. Elohim. Worship Him. Love Him. And love other people created in His image and likeness. And know that as you do those things, you will find yourself living the life that you were created to live, doing the things that you were born to do. And it is in that life that we find uh, deep peace and real joy. So let's stand to sing our closing hymn. I can think of no more relevant song to sing than Be Thou My Vision. A prayer to, to God that we would see Him and that we would keep Him at the forefront of our minds and our lives.